From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Several counties, including Denver, are tightening restrictions as COVID cases grow. To fight complacency, the governor turned one of his regular addresses over to survivors of the disease. So I'm still having a ton of doctor's appointments, pulmonary rehab, CT scans, things like that. You're not sure if this is going to last another three weeks, three months, or three years. We'll check in with a doctor on the front lines. Then, how best to deal with internet trolls, especially in an election year. What a pandemic ski season will look like. And another installment in our New American series. I'm always of the opinion that, you know, when in Rome, be a Roman. And if you want to have a say in how things are run, you need to become a citizen. And so I I came here for a reason, to be an American. The majority of CPR's membership base gives monthly. Thank you to our Evergreen members for making support for Colorado Public Radio an ongoing priority in your budget. Your monthly donation is CPR's most reliable source of revenue, and it's put to work each and every day directly serving communities across our great state. This has been a year filled with unexpected change. As a member, you ensure that free access to news, information, and music remains unchanged. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When it comes to COVID-19, it can be difficult to stay hypervigilant month after month. It's why, as cases and hospitalizations rise in the state, the governor turned his Tuesday address over to COVID-19 survivors. One of them was Clarence Troutman of Denver. The 59-year-old spent about a month in a coma. I had no idea what was going on until I woke up and one of the nurses asked me, well, do you know where you are and what's going on? And I told her, well, no, I have no idea. All I could see was a dark room with some windows shuttered and a bunch of people around with uh, machines beeping everywhere. And at that point, she told me, well, you're at UC Health, been here for right at a month. You've tested positive for COVID-19. I cried for maybe 10 minutes and then um, had her explain the rest of the situation to me, what was going to happen from then. Troutman has had to do a lot of rehabilitation. His is not the typical experience, but it's a reminder of how uneven COVID's effects can be. This week, some Colorado counties are moving to stricter phases, including Denver, Arapaho, Adams, Otero, and Crowley. Let's get perspective from one hospital, Denver Health. Dr. Ivor Douglas specializes in pulmonary intensive care. Doctor, welcome back to the program. Ryan, good morning, and thank you for the invitation to return. It's seven months since we first discussed this topic, and I'd hope never to have to come back and discuss it again, but here we are. Here we are, indeed. And I gather you're seeing these trends firsthand at Denver Health. What's the COVID scene there now? Yeah, I think it's reflective of the state as a whole. You know, We're back to numbers that we haven't seen since the end of May, uh, and the trajectory is, again, very much on the upward slope, very much reflective of the both the national trend, but very sadly, the global trend. We're seeing this in Western Europe as well. The the leading part of this is hospitalizations. And, you know, while indeed testing rates in our broader community are above that crucial 5% positive, I think that statewide we're close to 6% now, um, that the back end of it is uh, increasing general hospitalizations. We're still well within the, uh, the capacity that we have 
planned for under a search circumstance. Okay. But what's very different from May is that unlike in May when our hospitals were relatively less busy, I won't say empty, but less busy, we're now in a situation where where these patients are being admitted to very, very busy hospitals, caring for the general medical circumstances and surgical circumstances that we're used to. Mm. And that's really adding tremendous strain, such that I think we're over 70% ICU bed capacity across the region already. Uh, UC Health, uh, Mr. Troughton's experience that you just heard of, uh, uh, really under tremendous strain. And uh, Denver Health, they're heading in that direction as well. So we should be clear that ICUs are busier. Some of that is COVID. Some of that is just that there are other health needs to attend to. We saw early in the pandemic what some doctors referred to as slovid. In other words, doctors' offices and hospitals simply weren't seeing other sorts of patients. That's not true anymore, and that's complicating the picture. Ryan, that's right. And let's be clear, that was an artificial slovid. What what we then learned on the back end is that there had been widespread disconnection from the healthcare system, such that the back the catch-up on complications of chronically uh, undermanaged illnesses were substantial. And let's be clear, unlike in, let's say, March and April when we got going with this thing, we were coming out of an influenza uh, uh, season. We're heading into influenza season with a less than optimally vaccinated population. And so the real challenge that I think uh, we're looking at in the Northern Hemisphere generally, but uh, let's just take Denver, for example, is the con- the uh, concomitant presentations of viral respiratory viral illnesses, and that becomes very complicated. Not just because it's going to imperil the PPE, but because it could get very difficult to sort through what the problems are when patients initially present. And and so I guess the that if I can leave one thing with folks today, on top of the usual commendations around social distancing and masks is please get your flu vaccines. Please, please, please get flu flu vaccines. That is to say, there's going to be a lot of untangling when someone comes to the hospital. Is this COVID? Is this the flu? And uh, it's possible that you will be seeing waves of both. Um, and you mentioned there concerns about PPE, personal protective equipment. I'm also wonder, uh, wondering if you have concerns about finding enough doctors and nurses and whether there's burnout at this point. Yeah, let's deal with the latter initially, because I think that uh, folks should be in no doubt the people doing the work are absolutely committed to their task and and very much uh, unwavering in the uh, in their resolve to ensure that our communities are seen through this awful pandemic, but but the impact on everybody uh, in in that health env- healthcare environment from the providers themselves through our all too important environmental service providers, food preparers, it cannot be cannot be underestimated. The the duration of this thing and our failure to really crush crush the pandemic during the summer when we had a chance means that people are dealing with the consequences now not just of another wave, but uh, social and uh, domestic uncertainty, and for many of our frontline workers, economic uncertainty, um, particularly as they're dealing with older family members, uh, kids at home. And if we go back into lockdown, which would be really... Most unfortunate, but I think that there's some good chance of a tear on the front range if we don't get things under control. Uh, we're then dealing with the dual challenges of providing care while also provide being being you know present for our families and kids. Do you think myths still persist about the novel 
coronavirus? I mean, I, I know that one you know, very understandable reaction is to look at cases that are very mild and to say, you know, why are we panicking about something that for many people uh, is not what Mr. Troutman experienced, for instance? Right. And and so um, I think this comes back to my commendation to our community to understand the collective responsibility that we have. It's true that for some people, COVID may not be a major illness, but the lack of responsibility about transmission from a otherwise uh, uh, asymptomatic person to grandma or the neighbor or somebody in a social circle who ends up actually being Mr. Troutman, it cannot be cannot be overestimated. And I think if ever there was a time that a refabrication of our social contract becomes apparent, it's under these circumstances going into the winter. It It is so much more about the individual here. And, w- and when we think about it, Mr. Troutman is a family member of somebody, and we have many patients just like him. I really have to emphasize that the bite here has been amongst our inner city Latina community um, and our, our black and brown communities more broadly across the front range. Uh, and particularly need to emphasize that this, this has not had a, uh, an equal effect on communities, particularly communities of color. And so the tremendous challenge that we have to protect our inner city communities who are particularly vulnerable, uh, it really falls on Denver Health's shoulders. And, you know, it's, it's a responsibility that we are well prepared to address. Hmm. We have been reporting recently on CPR News about long haulers, those who are slow to recover from COVID-19. And these patients have told us about continued shortness of breath, elevated heart rate, fatigue, gastrointestinal issues, brain fog. I wonder, Dr. Douglas, if you're starting to think of COVID-19, at least for some, as something of a chronic disease. Yeah, Ryan, I, I'm going to ask us to refine that definition in a more medical term. Okay. And I want to introduce the term PICS or post-ICU syndrome and highlight that uh, post-ICU syndrome with those features that you've spoken about has been well characterized in the medical literature for decades, but particularly over the last seven to 10 years. So not exclusive then, to COVID. Uh, it is not, but I think that what we're now appreciating is that critical illness is not uh, limited to people just with, uh, you know, advanced age and comorbidity. The people that we're caring for are Mr. Troutman, who are otherwise perfectly healthy. And so the awareness of this post-ICU syndrome, which is uh, cognitive uh, insufficiency, um, neuromuscular weakness, uh, prolonged respiratory distress with uh, sometimes scarring up of areas of the lung, impaired cardiac function and renal function is very sadly a burden of illness. And I I think Mm. we would do better to introduce that post-ICU syndrome more broadly so that we don't misunderstand that the burden in our community of critical illness, exactly as you say, is chronic. It, It does pursue into the community. And the impact of ICU illness is not that you suddenly wake up off the ventilator and don't remember anything. It has long-standing impact on returning to function, on socioeconomic well-being, and getting back to your activities of daily living. And I, I think that, in a sad way, I'm sorry, this is how our communities have become aware of this problem, but but it is a reality. In just the last few moments, I didn't ask whether you have started to see flu hospitalizations yet. We. I'm not aware of us having picked one up at our institution. I'm certainly not aware that we have a widespread outbreak yet. But this is just after that snowfall last week. 
this would be just when we would expect things to start picking up. I do have to emphasize that hand hygiene, wearing a mask and social distancing are phenomenally good strategies to not get the flu on top of a flu vaccine. So it turns out that uh, just those same public health measures uh, can be very effective. And the, the example of that is in Australia, where uh, with good adherence to those measures, the flu uh, season was very mild, um, uh, along with their excellent control of the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Ivor Douglas there, Chief of Pulmonary Sciences and Critical Medicine at Denver Health Medical Center. He also leads the Medical Intensive Care Unit there. This election, there's a good chance you've seen some misinformation on social media. It may or may not be meddling by Russian bots. With advice on how not to feed trolls, let's welcome back Shiv Mishra and Tamara Lehman from the Center for Democracy and Technology at CU Boulder. Professors, hello again. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Let's get elementary here, uh, Tamara. What's a bot? How does one actually work? So a bot is basically um, an automated user on a social media platform that is designed to uh, achieve some goal. So in the case of uh, you know, misinformation campaigns, uh, they, they are made so that they distribute uh, misleading information and to get users to have a big reaction and to share that information uh, widely. And connect a bot to a troll for me. Help us understand the difference there. Um, so a troll um, is, I guess, a user that's um, made to cause uh, big reactions and, and big, um, I guess, uh, opposition to uh, certain topics. And a bot is uh, taking on that uh, strategy to. Um, to solve discord and to cause big action, big reactions to certain topics. Yeah, I think the theme there that is important to pick up on is to cause big reactions. Shiv, uh, whom do bots target and what is in it for them to get, you know, big reactions, as Tamara says? Right. Right. So so the bots actually, uh, they actually have a a very specific purpose, especially in the context of... uh, uh, spreading misinformation in the uh, in the elections, and uh, so on one hand, you know they simply try to collect you know you know personal information about the users like names, addresses, phone numbers, etc. However, uh, they actually have uh, researchers have found that you know there is actually a pretty broad uh, strategy that these bots and indeed other misleading propaganda on social networks uh, uh, have you know, which is to increase the ideological divide between the left and the right. And so in order to do that, the bots, uh, uh, the researchers have found that these bots specifically target, you know, users maybe on the, who are on the left side and then try to feed in uh, propaganda that would uh, uh, shift these uh, users further to the left. And they basically adopt a similar strategy for the users uh, 
um, you know, who are on the right side. And so the whole idea is, uh, you know, the strategy is to increase the ideological divide. This is what the research uh, researchers have found. Actually. Yeah. And so there are targets on both sides of the political spectrum, uh, giving the country as a whole and giving individual actors a sense that there is a greater divide in the country than there actually is. Am I saying that right, Shiv? Yeah, that, that's correct, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and also, um, in, in terms of the, the Russian bots from the 2016 election, um, um, I'm, I'm aware of a Senate inquiry by uh, Senate Intelligence Committee that actually found that uh, African-American voters were targeted more than any other single group you know, by these bots. Okay. Uh, state for me, just because I had a little trouble understanding you, that the research was mm-hmm. that African-Americans were disproportionately targeted. That was, you said, in a, in a Senate race in what year? Uh, this was, I think, uh, 2017, I believe. Okay. This was probably, not the Senate race. This was a, a Senate inquiry by... Oh, Senate a Senate inquiry. Oh, I see. All right. And so there is some disproportionality in who is targeted. You know, our reporters have noticed misinformation being shared on platforms like Facebook and Nextdoor, not just Twitter, mm-hmm. for instance. Uh, Tamara, do, do bots also target those sorts of networks? And if so, is it easier or harder to spread disinformation there? Oh, absolutely. Any social media that exists today is definitely being targeted by um, these types of campaigns. Um, Some uh, platforms are harder to identify these type of uh, misbehavior because, for example, um, you have in Instagram, most of the messages are uh, sent with pictures with images yeah. and uh, this machine learning algorithms that are designed to uh, identify bots and this type of misbehavior, um, it's a little bit harder for those tools to identify um, images uh, of this category. Interesting. So if it had been pure text, it would be different. And exactly. if, if it's embedded in imagery, it's just harder to root out. It's harder to identify. Yeah, that's right. It's it's much harder to identify in different media. So, uh, you know, images, video, um, any other content that's not pure text, it's a little bit harder to identify. We, we've been talking about bots, a little bit about trolls, uh, but misinformation from any source, human, for instance, you know, that misinformation can have real effects in the world. How have we seen people act on misinformation recently, Tamara? Um, yeah, so we had, uh, I, I don't know if everybody remembers this, but um, in the middle of the pandemic, uh, there was some misinformation that a certain uh, drug could uh, cure COVID. And so there was a couple that uh, actually found a drug in their medicine cabinet that had this uh, ingredient and they actually uh, took um, a bunch of pills uh, that uh, had that ingredient and unfortunately they passed away. So um you know, misinformation can have real impact in people. And so it's very important that we all are aware of this and uh, that we keep our eyes out uh, for uh, possible misinformation or misleading information that's out there. Okay, we have a question from our audience editor here at CPR, Francis Widler, who sees a lot of troll engagement on social media. If you find yourself engaged in a conversation on social media with someone you suspect is a bad actor, what should you do? What would be your advice, Shiv? 
So, so the first thing is basically not to uh, engage with the uh, with the uh, suspected bots, and the reason is because the way uh, we these tools, so social media tools, they are able to detect that an account is actually a bot is essentially trying to find an anomaly in the user account behavior, trying to distinguish them from a typical user behavior. And one of the traits for that is that bots typically do not interact in a natural way as a typical user would interact with the other users. And so so that's the one thing, you know, that is if, if real users start interacting with the bot, then the bot actually starts getting more legitimacy in terms of that, you know, it is actually a real user and not a, um, not a um, you know automated uh, account. So that's so one you're, thing, you know, it's not, by interacting with a bot, you are in in a way lending it legitimacy and and sort of kind of teaching it. That is correct huh. because uh, when you are interacting with uh, with an account, you know basically that account starts. Uh, it seems like you know it's a real user account, you know, as opposed to uh, an automated uh, algorithm that is acting behind it. Huh. So in a way, we have to override our maybe knee-jerk reaction when we see something that triggers us on social media, because uh, it can it can feel so good to indulge that and say, you know what, this isn't worth it. Yes, that that's absolutely correct. You know, basically, um, one of the strategy that uh, the the misleading propaganda adopts is actually to uh, to essentially uh, raise what is called moral outrage. You know, essentially trying to moral uh, you know you know yeah moral outrage. Yeah. So basically, the idea is to you know make users uh, you know more engaged by you know uh, by um, you know. Um, achieving, you know, in targeting their uh, inner emotions, you know, and uh, the more we start interacting with these uh, uh, these accounts, you know, the more uh, we, the users get more impacted by that. So, Tamara, I wonder if you've become pretty good at spotting the warning signs that you're interacting with someone who's fake online. I would like to think so. <laughs> yeah. What are what are some of the signs you look for, Tamara? Um, so, you know, if, if they have a strong opinion and it's, uh, you know, maybe making me mad or, you know, pushing my buttons in a way that, uh, you know, would make me react naturally, you know, I pause for a second and I think to myself, is this, you know, a real user or not? Um, same thing with, you know, misinformation, uh, with news articles that might be misleading or fake. Uh, you know, if they have a, a title that seems uh, either to completely agree with your beliefs or to completely disagree with your beliefs, then, you know, just be aware that it might not be completely accurate. Um, that you might be being played, I guess. Exactly. Uh, Shiv, in just about a minute or so, it, it seems that misinformation is here to stay. It's not going to evaporate after Election Day. How do you think consumers, companies could be more vigilant in the fight against, you know, fake news in just a few seconds? Right, right. So so the first thing is, of course, to be fully aware of the fact that the news that the users, consumers are getting, um, you know, it is it could be fake or misleading. And so, uh, so the users should not accept uh, the news to be true on the face value, you know. Instead, instead, you know, it is important to do due diligence, like cross-checking with other news sources, you know, reliable news sources, and uh, yeah. going going to the fact-checking sites and uh, 
those kind of things. Essentially, uh, you know, do the due diligence before, you know, uh, you accept the news. Um, that you see we call that double sourcing or triple sourcing. And it's something that you can do as a news consumer as well. I'm grateful to both of you. So that's Shiv Mishra and Tamara Lehman. They're both with the Center for Democracy and Technology at CU Boulder. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with how the pandemic will change the ski season. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is CPR News. The majority of CPR's membership base gives monthly. Thank you to our Evergreen members for making support for Colorado Public Radio an ongoing priority in your budget. Your monthly donation is CPR's most reliable source of revenue, and it's put to work each and every day directly serving communities across our great state. This has been a year filled with unexpected change. As a member, you ensure that free access to news, information, and music remains unchanged. Thank you. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado's ski season starts today. Lifts at Wolf Creek Ski Area began running this morning. Drought means the season's starting later than usual, but that gave resorts more time to develop COVID-19 plans and get them approved, a key step. The president of Colorado Ski Country USA, an industry group, is Melanie Mills. And Melanie, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be here with you and your listeners. Let's step into a skier's or snowboarder's boots. What noticeably changes about the ski day because of the pandemic? Maybe we start with lift lines and lifts. Sure. Well, let's let's talk about the measures that we've grown used to over the last seven and a half months. Mm. Skiers and riders will be wearing masks in base areas at ski areas. They'll be wearing masks in lift lines and while riding lifts and gondolas. We're going to see more social distancing than usual because typically you've got that for the distance of your skis or snowboard front to back, but you're going to be seeing more social distancing all around and indicators everywhere that remind you to stay six feet away. Um, You're going to see limits on the numbers of people that can be in buildings and indoor spaces at one time. Um, You're going to see a lot more advanced purchasing this year and advanced planning and more outdoors. We're really um, going back to the to the roots of the the sports themselves. So huh. We'll be spending more time outside. You talked about masks. Uh, do you have to wear a mask while you're going down a mountain? You can take your mask off once you're up on the mountain skiing and riding and you're socially distant from anybody who's not in your immediate skiing party. Okay. And then, you know, I'm when I have skied, I've been used to being thrown on a lift chair with, it might be a friend if I'm skiing with a friend or a stranger. If I'm not, uh, I gather that that's just not going to happen, that kind of arrangement, the latter. Well, there are, there are a couple of different things that you'll see this year um, with respect to riding lifts and gondolas. You will be able to, um, and you're going to be encouraged to load lifts and gondolas at full capacity with people in your skiing or riding party, whether that's your household, whether that's the people you're skiing and riding with. If you're riding on a lift, which is an open air proposition, you may ride with someone who is not in your party, but there will be at least one seat in between you and 
um, the other party. And Makes remember, sense. you'll be masked. And if you're riding in a gondola, there will be up to two parties allowed in a gondola and gondolas will be loaded with with more than one party riding. The gondolas will be loaded at only 50 percent capacity. So there'll be plenty of space between parties with and everyone will have their masks on. Not unlike elevator rules under COVID, I guess. And overall, are ski areas and resorts limiting the number of people skiing and snowboarding? Is there simply a a cap? Well, there's not simply a cap, but let's talk about what we call access management in the ski business. Yeah, because you talked about advanced purchasing and kind of reservation systems being critical to this. Yep, that's right. Well, a ski typical ski season here in Colorado, um, Ryan, is about 140 days long. And on, let's say, 20 to 25 of those days, where the numbers of skiers and riders needs to be paired back so that we can ensure distancing and we can not overwhelm our facilities, you are going to see some different measures in place to control access or limit access. And here in Colorado, because we have such a diversity of ski areas, some little tiny community, local hills, all the way up to big destination resorts, every ski area is going to do something a little bit different to manage that access. At some ski areas like Eldora and Copper Mountain, you'll need a parking reservation, and that will help them manage access. Hmm. Other ski areas will limit the number of day tickets that they sell and require advanced purchase. Um, Some past products will require reservations. Uh, There will be peak day blackouts on certain past products. And a lot of programming that you might see typically at a ski area on a weekend, whether those be special events, whether those be racing clinics or uh, other programs like that are probably going to be moved to midweek days just so that we can reduce the number of, of folks who are there on these really busy days and keep it feeling comfortable for everybody. It strikes me that from a skier or snowboarder's perspective, if you are popping up to an area or a resort for a day ski, uh, you know, kind of buying a ticket at the booth, you might want to be careful. You might want to just call ahead, plan ahead Figure that out in advance. You know, that is the the watchword of the season, Ryan. Um, We've borrowed that phrase, know before you go, from uh, the Colorado Avalanche Information Center and the backcountry community because it's absolutely true for going skiing every single time you go skiing this year. Plan ahead, check the ski area's website, uh, follow them on social media, Go to coloradoski.com's COVID page and see if there have been any changes to procedures for how you need to um, buy a ticket or use your pass on that particular day. Uh, Melanie Mills is president and CEO of Colorado Ski Country USA. And uh, Melanie, I'm fascinated that state guidelines, I think issued last week, emphasize that contact tracing is a must if a guest gets sick or tests positive for COVID-19. Are ski operators equipped to do that kind of public health work? Well, it it's going to be a challenge, Ryan, and we're going to need the cooperation of everybody who participates. 
With respect to our own employees, yes, we know how to contact Trace. With eSchool, that's a pretty straightforward proposition because we're collecting everybody's name and contact information as they register. Hmm. With all the skiers and riders on the mountain on any given day, um, we don't have a button that we can push at the end of the day that prints out the name and phone number and email address of everyone who's been there that day, but we're encouraging folks to use the state's exposure notification app um, that you can download, and that will help um, let you know if someone who you had close contact with um, gets a positive COVID test. And we'll be using other tools such as our website and, and things like that to notify folks of information they need to know um, about the ski area. I suppose this is even more of a reason if you have a smartphone uh, with the capability, uh, perhaps to turn on that COVID tracking feature. I, I also think that uh, if someone gets sick in the high country, they've got a quarantine there, right? And and doing so may mean they are past their reservation and they need a place to stay. How's that going to work? Well, um, you know, I think that'll be a a slightly different story in every community, depending on where folks are visiting. Um, But there's a a big there's been a big dialogue and it's an ongoing one between our local public health authorities, the lodging community, the ski resorts about making sure that folks know before they um, before they make their reservation about Colorado's requirement that they quarantine if they become sick and that they're prepared to do so when they arrive here if they do become sick, whether they stay in their current lodging or whether they're able to uh, move to other lodging that is close by where they can stay for the required quarantine period. Melanie, I think of the housing for ski employees Um, living in communal situations and how hard it might be to stop the spread of the virus among workers in those conditions. Yep. Employee housing presents a a unique challenge, and it's one where uh, we really have been collaborating quite a bit. Uh, A number of the areas are testing employees or requiring a negative test before employees move into employee housing. They will be limiting guests in employee housing this winter. They will be um, limiting social gatherings and parties, and they're going to be very strict about that right from the outset. There will be lots of messaging with employees um, really from the get-go when they first arrive for training about our 24-7 responsibility to each other this winter. And... um, We also are are doing some creative things with having employees uh, work in pods as much as possible so that if we do have an employee outbreak, we hopefully have to quarantine a small number of employees and have an impact on a small piece of the operation rather than something that's widespread. Navigating a new world as many of us are. Melanie, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Melanie Mills, president and CEO of Colorado Ski Country USA, with a preview there of the pandemic ski season. 
Now, another story of a new American voting for the first time. Ultra-endurance athlete Mike LaRue and his wife Kirsten came to Pagosa Springs in 2013 by way of South Africa and Australia. They'd been citizens both places. And when they moved to Colorado, they knew they wanted to swap passports once again. Mike came to the U.S. for better training and coaching opportunities, but he has since tapered his racing career and become head of emergency operations for Archuleta County. It's a demanding job, especially in wildfire season. LaRue took a break to tell CPR's Avery Lill about his path to citizenship. We came in on a visa. I I got into the U.S. as a professional athlete, and so my visa or my way of entry was as a professional athlete. From there, we then applied for the green card, and that process took about 18 months. Once we received that green card, obviously, you have to be a green card holder for a minimum of five years before you can actually apply for citizenship. And so almost five years to the day, I applied. And then the process after that didn't actually take that long. So I think we applied in June 2019, and I think by November 15th, we'd been sworn in as citizens. And so overall, I think it took a hair under seven years, but it feels worthwhile. It's one of those where you you know you've worked for it, and when you get it, I think you feel like you've earned it. And is Pagosa Springs the first place in the U.S. you've lived? It is. The first and only place we've lived. We've traveled extensively around. I've loved Colorado right from the beginning. I, I met somebody from Pagosa Springs in a race that I did in a part of the Moroccan Sahara back in 2008. And that's kind of how I found it. So we moved straight from Australia to here, and we've been here now just over seven and a half years. And what about Pagosa Springs made you decide to live there? You know, it's got the best of everything. From an athletic point of view, for where I was at the time and my training, we're at 7,500 feet at the average, and that's kind of optimal for altitude training. We're close enough to the mountains. We've got the Continental Divide right next door to us. And then because we're on the western slope, the temperatures that we get are reasonably mild just because we're high desert. And so we're kind of remote and we're kind of rural, but we're an hour away from anything that we need. So tell me about the move from Australia. Are there any stories about settling in that come to mind? You know, it's a long way. We We didn't know what we didn't know. You know, the older you get and the more responsibilities you have, the more stuff you accumulate over time. And so, you know, just briefly back from our move from South Africa to the UK and then to Australia, we we started off with two bags. Uh, We moved to the UK. We moved from the UK to Australia with a couple of boxes. And then from Australia to here was a full shipping container that we shipped across with. Everything that we thought we could not live without that we'd kind of collected over time. And when we got here, it took almost a full year for that shipping container to arrive with our heirlooms and and such. I'd forgotten, in fact, what we actually put on that shipping container, all of which we ended up selling when it got here because we had all the stuff necessary to live in the U.S. So it was a total waste of money and time getting that across here. And how is settling into the community in Pagosa Springs? Very easy. Um, Open community, easy community. Uh, We started our time off here by managing a non-profit organization called Gecko. 
The acronym stands for Give Every Child Knowledge of the Outdoors. And what we did was we'd put on running races, trail running races in the forest here. And the proceeds from that, the funds that we generated from race entry and donations, we would send anywhere between three and five local kids on 30-day Knowles outdoor leadership courses. So, you know, we immersed ourselves in the community, made use of the large volunteer organizations here in town, got involved with Rotary and all the local clubs and, and that. So the community was open to us and they were friendly and we've made some really good friends out of it. And like you said, you've already moved to other countries before. How has moving to the U.S. been different or maybe similar um, to your other moves? You know, I think uh, what we've liked about our move here, so the, the move here was pretty easy. Um, Australia is a relatively easy country to live in, and the transition across it's really similar. We found accommodation, we found you know a place to work, and so the opportunities are, are far greater. We've we've had to work at it, and in some respects it, there have been some tough times, but um, certainly the transition into this way of living, you know, based on I suppose the the majority philosophy of you know your freedom and rights um, certainly has been easy and welcoming. So probably the easiest move we've made. And when you say there have been some tough times, is there one that comes to mind that you're willing to share? You know, I think the opportunities are here, absolutely, but you have to work on them, right? So nothing is is handed to you on a plate, which is something that I actually enjoy, right? There's competition and you're rewarded for the amount of work that you put in. That's not the same necessarily in other countries. And so, you know, just finding your feet, getting in at the lowest level and then working your way up, it just is, I suppose we've moved here um, in our late 30s. And so we'd, you accumulate certain wealth elsewhere, which you, you use to make that transition across. And so you're effectively starting at the lowest rung when you move in. And so you're a small fish in a big pond and just working your way up to your comfort level or or the level that you have been comfortable before uh, certainly is less easy the older you get. Yeah. And tell me about the decision to become a citizen. Well, I'm always of the opinion that you know, when in Rome, be a Roman. And if you want to have a say in the community and the future of, of your well-being, you need to you need to embrace the culture. You want to have a say in how things are run. You need to become a citizen. And so I, I take that very seriously. And I like to contribute locally and nationally where I can. And so I think uh, for me, I came here for a reason to be an American and uh the sooner I could become one, the better it is. And you became a citizen during this time of turmoil. Of course, the pandemic didn't start until after you and your wife had already become citizens, but there was already political polarization. Um, There's the national reckoning with racial inequality. How much did being able to vote in November's election play into your decision to become a U.S. citizen? A lot. You know, as you said, the political climate at the moment here is, is tumultuous. And certainly this year has been you know, every election year, things tend to ramp up. I'm involved at a reasonably local level in politics just because I work for a sheriff and that's an elected position. And um, so I go through this every four years here locally. And although I haven't been able to vote, I've been active on campaign committees for that position of sheriff and local commissioner. So 
you know, all of that's important. So even though I haven't had the opportunity to vote until now, absolutely, I'm looking forward to voting and putting my mark down here uh, for November. And I think it's important. And uh, I think that that should be a mandatory thing. Certainly in Australia, um, it's mandatory that you vote and uh, there's a penalty. There's a financial penalty if you don't, but there's just less people. But I think it's important that everybody votes. How will you vote in the November election? Yeah, so Republican. Will you vote for Donald Trump for president? I will. And what are the issues driving your vote? I'm not a political beast at that level. I'd I'd rather not get myself uh, too deep into a hole. Okay. Um, Every immigration path is different. It's different depending on what country you're coming from. But when you talk with other people who've been involved in immigration and other immigrants, what experiences do you share or what questions do you have for each other? I suppose just what made you immigrate, the process, and it's interesting to note, I was actually having this conversation with somebody else that it seems to me that different immigration routes have different processing times. And, you know, I couldn't have been happier with the processing time that we had. We couldn't have done it any quicker. It couldn't have been a better experience. Um, I know that for others, it's been maybe slightly drawn out depending on the on the route that you choose. Um, you know, those are just the, the conversations. Everybody comes back to the same old thing. You know, what are you here for? How, how did you do that? And what's your process been like? You know, and I think uh, the other thing too is we talk about the, you know, the process is, you know, you, you have to do the citizen test and you, you learn some history about the US and you have to answer some questions and the uh, you got to, you know, read and write and speak English. Um, all good stuff, but not necessarily great for everybody when, depending on your skill set and where you're at and your age, those parameters might be harder to achieve for, for other people. Right? I come from an English-speaking background and English-speaking countries. Reading, writing English is not a problem for me. It's maybe not as easy for, for others. And then circling back to politics, and I'll let you share whatever you're comfortable with, but how do you think being an immigrant shapes your perspective of U.S. politics? Well, I'll be honest with you. I, the politics at the moment, you know, certainly there are some issues out there. Growing up in South Africa, politics are very different to what they are here. We appreciate as an immigrant everything that we have. I mean, I certainly, not having grown up here, I look at this as a wonderful situation, not regardless of the political climate, but certainly I don't look a gift horse in the mouth. I'm grateful for everything that we have here and the opportunities we have here. I sometimes feel that maybe, you know, and I've been guilty of this, that growing up in an area where you have everything and you're you're kind of in it, people take that for granted or they become complacent or they expect too much and what we have here is certainly way more than what a lot of other countries have and so when you look at other countries politics compared to this this is pretty straightforward when i look back to you know where my family are from and still are that's in south africa politics there are polar opposite there's not just some policies that are different it's 180 degrees different between the two main parties, you know? And uh, so when I look at politics here, I 
I don't consider them to be the same as, as others. I, I actually see the problems potentially not quite as bad. So the polarization you see here is actually less than what you grew up with in South Africa. For sure, for sure. And so it's really not that bad. Um, and certain other places in the world, you know, punctuation separates policy. It's that minute, yet people get upset about things maybe for the wrong reason or they're maybe not as informed or I'm not really sure what how to view that. But I don't see it being that bad here. Yes, there are differences, but ultimately everybody's free. Everybody's... Uh, got opportunity. And when you talk about opportunities that people take for granted, are there a couple that come to mind? Um, I suppose just just facilities and infrastructure and, you know, the ability to order something online and it comes two days later, certainly for us, our overnight is two days later down here, but free resources available. I look at, you know, the, the, the national forest that we have available to us, all of that open space. I mean, there is 300 and some million or whatever the population is here in the U.S. On a land mass, I say the same size as Australia, where there's 20 million people. So in Australia, for example, there's just you just don't see anybody, but there's less available free space for you to recreate and and resources to enjoy. And so when you hear about complaints being made or people not happy with certain things when I look at elsewhere and places that I've been we certainly have way more available to us and so when it doesn't work as well as we'd like it to work in the grand scheme of things it's not as bad well I just want to thank you so much for sharing your perspective and your story absolutely and you know I don't we love being here it's um it's been a fantastic journey I love what I do I'm involved in the community here and uh, you know i'm really looking forward to the opportunity to vote in november it will be what it'll be uh, i'm not upset either way we'll make it work life goes on but it is uh, it's a great country and we love it that is mike larue he and his wife kirsten moved to the u.s from australia in 2013 they became citizens last october All week, we're sharing the stories of new U.S. citizens voting here for the first time. You can read their stories and see their photos at CPR.org. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for being with us. You can follow the show at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner. And as we head closer and closer to the election, make sure to check out our comprehensive voter's guide if you haven't cast your ballot yet at CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.